KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is a special six-part series called Dr. J's. I'm KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Yesterday in this series, we talked about how the police department's relationship with Southeast San Diego changed after a gang shooting gone wrong. Two innocent women on their way home from church were killed in gang crossfire. The crime was so horrific that it brought more police presence to the area and more cooperation between residents and police. It changed the whole community. few weeks after I went to the midnight New Year's Eve service at True Faith Church, I was back at a regular Sunday service. This time, I was hoping to meet Tanya Waits. She's the daughter of Carol Waits, who was killed in the Dr. J's shooting. Tanya Waits still attends the same church her mother went to, the church her mother was on her way home from when she was caught in the crossfire of a gang shooting. There were more people at the Sunday service, maybe about 40, and Tanya Waits came in late after dropping off her two younger children at the church's Sunday school. Her pastor had told me he'd let her know I was coming to meet her, but when I approached, she had no idea who I was. I couldn't imagine being approached by a stranger in the middle of church, hoping to talk about when my mother was killed, but she was really kind about it. She asked me politely if we could talk later and gave me her phone number. Then, as I was in the church parking lot getting ready to leave, she walked outside with her oldest daughter, who, it turns out, was Janice Waits, the little girl who was in the backseat of the car when her grandmother was shot. Well, it's kind of like a a three-year-old type of memory, you know, for me, like, I think there was a dragon there. And um, it was kind of like a story from a fairy tale or an action movie, you know. Um, That, to me, is what my memory is. But as I get older and I realize that it's not, that's not exactly what happened. But, like, it's nice kind of having the the memory that it's, it was kind of like, you know, a little fake, despite it being real. Her second cousin, who was seven years old at the time, shielded her with his body. He was shot multiple times, but survived. Janice doesn't really remember that and doesn't see that cousin anymore. He moved away from San Diego. Now she's 18 and a freshman in college outside LA. She talked really fast and moved her hands a lot as she described what must be one of her first memories. I have like this childhood or this childish view of it rather than a more like adultish view of it. And I like the childish view rather than the adultish view. The adultish view, of course, is that her grandmother was killed, leaving her mom to deal with her death on her own. Her mom didn't want to do a recorded interview, but told me she still struggles with it. She was in Washington, D.C. when the shooting happened and said before the trip, she almost decided not to go. Something felt funny to her, but her mom talked her into it. If she'd stayed in San Diego, she likely would have been in the car that night as well. 
She said she had to leave San Diego after the shooting because everywhere she went, she'd run into people who asked about it, about the search for who was responsible, and eventually about the trial. Once the trial was over, she came back, feeling like she finally had closure. Her daughter, Janice Waits, said she knows her life would have been very different if her grandmother hadn't been killed. She seems to be flourishing, but she said she thinks she'd be even more well-mannered, as she put it, if her grandmother was alive. From what I hear, she was very strict uh, in certain places. Uh, despite me being her favorite, I do see like me wearing, me wearing more dresses, me being a lot more uh, cleaner around the house. <laughs> We've been talking about how the shooting at Dr. J's had ripple effects throughout the community around the liquor store and the rest of the city. A boost in police presence, more community cooperation with police, and more attention to the gang violence that was going on. But it's also important to remember the effects the shooting had on the people directly involved, the families of the women who were killed, and the family of the man who was eventually convicted of their murder. And this is him when he was little. That's my grandmother. Look at his long legs. He was uh, not even a month old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is Ida Campbell showing me around her small and clean apartment in Rolando, which she shares with her teenage grandson. Her bookshelves were filled with family photos, including a baby picture of her son. When he was born, I had to take him uh, back to the doctor. I remember I might have been three times in a week and then two times a night. They thought he had gigantism because he was as long as a two-month-old baby. He was really long. Now Campbell's son, James Carter, is six foot seven, and she hasn't seen him in almost two years. He's been in Folsom Prison up in Sacramento, serving a life sentence without parole for murdering the two women outside Dr. J's. He's Campbell's only child, and he grew up with a mostly middle-class background. Campbell's father was one of the first black police officers in San Diego, and she owned her own business and worked as a model when James Carter was a kid. He was born in San Diego. He was the cutest little thing. I used to call him Doodlebug because he was so fat and roly-poly, and you would poke his little stomach and he would ball up around it, you know, like those potato bugs do. When he was four, they moved to Solana Beach and he would ride on surfboards and bring their dog Barney to the beach. Then, not long after, his father was killed in what Campbell says was a random shooting. She remarried and then divorced and she and James Carter moved to Talmadge. But as a teenager, he started spending time with people in the Skyline Gang, named after the neighborhood in Southeast San Diego. Campbell said she isn't sure why her son started hanging out in Skyline. His dad's side of the family lived in Southeast San Diego, but closer to Lincoln Park, which was rival gang territory. I remember he came home one day with uh, some red suede Nikes on. Horton Plaza had just opened up. And I was like, where'd you get, because I'm still on the alert of all this stuff, you know? I'm like, where'd you get those shoes from? Like, oh, I got them from Hornblower. You know, you cannot wear those shoes. No, you're not doing this. You're going to go out there and get shot. Red is the color associated with the Skyline Gang. 
Like a lot of parents whose kids end up in trouble, Campbell sees this moment as a possible turning point when she could have realized he was hanging out with the wrong people and changed the direction his life took. But of course, that's only in hindsight. Campbell said thinking back on this moment, she wishes she'd right then sent him to live with family in Texas. But she wanted to be with him. When you get into a crucial moment of your child's life, you really don't want to let it go for someone else to take care of it because they might not have the same love and mindset as you might have for them, you know. But that didn't work out too good, did it? The shooting at Dr. J's was supposed to be a gang retaliatory shooting. Linkin Park gang members had killed someone from Skyline a day earlier, so the Skyline gang was looking to hit back. So police were trying to figure out who from Skyline was involved. Campbell isn't sure how police narrowed in on her son as the suspect. But when detectives first came to their home to talk to him, she said she wasn't worried. That's because she was his alibi. The shooting happened on New Year's Eve, when a lot of people shoot their guns at the sky to celebrate. Campbell said at around midnight, her sister-in-law heard gunshots, called her house, and asked where James Carter was to make sure he was safe. She called, and I got up, and I, I said, well, wait a minute, let me go see. So I got up and went in there, and he was had my grandson on his chest. Pretty quickly, Campbell started to realize the case against her son was serious. Police raided their home that spring after the shooting and took a bunch of things out of his room, including a bulletproof vest, ammunition, and some broken guns. Then, more than six years after the shooting, James Carter was arrested. He went to trial in 2011, and his mom was one of the witnesses. In the trial transcripts from the case, you can see the prosecutor, Robert Hickey, doesn't want to dispute her story. Instead, he suggests that maybe she doesn't remember the timeline of events perfectly. He points out she's been confused and given different answers about when things happened in the past. He also has a police detective testify that James Carter might have been home when Campbell checked on him at midnight and still would have had time to leave, go meet up with the other gang members, and do the shooting just before 1 a.m. But in the trial, Campbell disputes this. She said that if her son had left, he would have brought her his baby son, who was sleeping on his chest. Because it took so long for Carter to be arrested and convicted, he was home for the first eight years of his son's life. My son, this was what's so ironic. Um, I'm going to try to hold on the best I can, okay? My son has not, he raised that boy. Everybody says, oh, he did such a good job. He finished school early. He was going to college while he was going to high school. He's never had a record. He's never been a Jew. He's never done anything wrong, blah, blah, blah. But my son raised him. The first eight years of a child's life is what sets their mindset. My son raised him. He did a very good job with him. He has not been able to touch his fingernail since he was eight, and he's 18. Campbell said she believes her son will somehow get exonerated. And in some ways, she's thankful he's at least in prison and not dead. He can call almost every day, and she's planning to drive up to Sacramento with her grandson to see him. Sorry. I just want him to get out with the mentality and the personality he had when he went in. 
it's like somebody going to hell, coming back out of hell, and now they're back. Oh, okay, we're, we're sorry, we made a mistake. So they put you back among the living. Tomorrow, we'll examine the case against James Carter. This series was reported and hosted by me, Claire Tregesser. It was edited by Tom Fudge and Suzanne Marmion. Video and audio recordings were done by Nick McVicker and me. Additional audio mixing and sound design was done by Emily Jankowski. Our podcast coordinator is Kinsey Moreland. Web producers are Elma Gonzalez and Chris Underwood. Check out our website at kpbs.org J for photos and videos and to listen to episodes you might have missed. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.